Welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. This is Allison R. Brown. I'm your host. Today we're talking about public policy, and public policy is one of those things like data and budgets. People's eyes tend to glaze over, but we're going to have a good time with this conversation today. Policy and really the substance of it is so fascinating to me, and it you know it's one of those things that just it makes the wheels on this thing called America and democracy turn. It's so vitally important. And it drives much of what we know, much of what we do. In schools, policy is what No Child Left Behind was. Policy is what created standardized tests. Policy is what created zero-tolerance school discipline policies that kicked kids out of school for minor things. Policy is partly how schools are resegregating today, and we're seeing segregation in greater numbers than we did even before Brown versus Board of Education, which is hard to do, you would think. So policy and data are really so crucial to American life, to the fabric of this country. And I'm really excited about today's discussion and about our guest today. So my guest is Keisha Bird. She is the Director of Youth Policy at CLASP, the Center for Law and Social Policy. She is also Project Director for the Campaign for Youth. Welcome to Schoolhouse, Keisha. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Keisha Bird, I always want to say that together. It just sounds, it just rings. Keisha Bird yes, has a yes. wonderful, <laughs> wonderful ring. So Keisha, what is CLASP and what is your role there? CLASP is about 50 years old. It's an anti-poverty organization. We got our roots really started in legal services and thinking about how legal services is a strategy to help folks who are living in poverty to move out of poverty. Over the last 30 years or so, we shifted to social policy, recognizing there are federal policies, state, you mentioned some local and institutional policies that actually reinforce ways that people have to stay in poverty, Mm -hmm. as well as they reinforce racial segregation, they reinforce geographic segregation. And so um, our social policy work really has morphed into a number of different areas from early care and education to higher education to workforce development. Mm -hmm. On the youth policy team, we explicitly focus on what are the policies and factors that um, contribute to young people being disconnected from positive systems, so disconnected from work, Mm -hmm. um, being pushed out of school. And what are the kinds of things that need to be in place to ensure that they have a safe environment in school, Mm -hmm. that they have pathways to higher education, pathways to jobs, and opportunity? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, policy, especially these days, is everywhere, and everybody's talking about policy. Just help us understand first, what is policy as compared to structures or practices, and why should communities be involved in creating and developing policy? Yeah, so it sounds like an amorphous term, but it really is everything that guides the way our government Mm -hmm. functions. So our our local governments, our state governments, our federal governments. Policies can be for good things like the civil rights laws Mm -hmm. in the 60s, which allowed for opportunities for African-Americans and many others, Mm -hmm. um, like the American Disabilities Act, Mm -hmm. that really allowed for us to have opportunities for folks who have disabilities. And so policies can do great things. Mm -hmm. As we have seen Mm -hmm. (laughs) with our new president here, the Trump administration, policies also can reinforce negative things and can roll back 
um, civil and human rights. And yeah. so why we should pay attention because policy is what shapes mm-hmm. our ability to function mm-hmm. as a whole human being. Policy is what guides funding choices at the state and local level. And when it comes to morality issues mm-hmm. and when it comes to uplifting uh, communities who have been marginalized, mm-hmm policies can either make or break those opportunities for folks who are in those communities. You're right that we're in a we're in a challenging time right now under the current administration and your work focused on young people. Mm-hmm. You must be really dealing with a lot right now. And so I just wonder in the scheme of things what are the policies or what is the policy that is the most pressing right now for young people? Yeah, so I I couldn't say there's one because, Mm -hmm. you know, we just convened some young leaders a month or so ago and have been just having conversations with them. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we heard loud and clear, and we know this with Mm -hmm. our own lives, we're not single issue people. Yeah. Right. And if you are um, a young woman Mm -hmm. and you maybe happen to be African American and maybe you happen to live in a community that is resource poor in Mm -hmm. terms of investments Mm -hmm. um, from public sources, you have a lot of issues. Mm -hmm. So a couple of things we're working on that are currently under threat with this administration that that really has not, well, there's a lot of moral issues to say the least, but also there is not um, a recognition Mm -hmm. of, I would say the humanity, Mm -hmm. you know, of young people. Mm -hmm. So, or people in general. So one, we're in fight for healthcare. So mm-hmm. that's huge. And yeah. we, we've heard from young people about that. Yeah. And that that is central to their ability to be present in school, mm-hmm. um, to be present in in their work, mm-hmm. to be present in their communities. For them um, to be well and to, be, to be held, and, it, it, Yeah, to be well, into wellness and well-being, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one. Um, two, really thinking about the role of the federal government mm-hmm. and how funding should be administered and what it should go for, Mm -hmm, right? And so mm -hmm. the Trump's administration's proposed budget, for example, Mm -hmm. drastic cuts, eliminating after-school programs, Mm -hmm. again, you know, redirecting funding towards uh, school choice Mm -hmm. without the kind of accountability and um, civil rights protections that we know are definitely needed, especially for young people of color and those with disabilities. And then the Third thing I would say, and we have an attorney general, Mm -hmm. and I think, you know, your folks really should be paying attention to this, is that while legislation isn't being passed Mm -hmm. that is codifying a lot of the things that's happening with the Department of Justice, there are a number of policies, letters, guidance um, that is being disseminated from Mm -hmm. Department of Justice that is reinstituting failed law and order strategies that over-police our communities in the name of reducing violent crime that does not invest in mentoring, for example, Mm -hmm. or the juvenile justice programs, which we know work. We Mm -hmm. have the evidence. Mm -hmm. It rolls. Diversion programs to keep people out of detention. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And they're going to further push young people into places where they shouldn't be, Mm -hmm. one that are not for their mental health and well-being. And, you know, over-criminalizing communities. When you take the police off the streets, you tell them you don't want them out there patrolling, talking to people, doing the squeegee guys and the the small crime toughs and thugs and confronting them and dealing with them, murders go up. And we should not have any decree 
on the police department that eliminates constitutionally provenly accepted policies that save lives. And that these decrees, some of them do that. This law and order yeah. rhetoric from the Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, who has essentially reinstated the war on drugs and therefore the war on young people, young mm-hmm. people of color, communities of color. What are the policies that are coming out of that rhetoric? So one, we see it in their proposed budget and mm-hmm. what should be funded. Mm-hmm. So their budget redirects funding for their wall and to put more law enforcement Border Patrol, as well as law enforcement and communities on the ground. Mm -hmm. So people, a lot of people say, oh, that budget is dead on arrival. Congress has to appropriate the funds. Mm -hmm. But what it does is it sets up a framework of this is where we are and this is where we're going. Because budget is policy, right? Exactly. Policy is budget. Exactly. Exactly. The other thing what we have seen as well is um, there's a task force, right, Mm -hmm. that they created by executive order Mm -hmm. to reduce violent crime. And so we're waiting to see from that task force what are going to be the recommendations. We've already seen on the Hill a number of Blue Lives Matter Mm -hmm. legislative proposals that essentially reverse many of the great recommendations that the 21st Century Policing Task Force under the Obama administration Mm -hmm. recommended. That was done with law enforcement, with youth, Mm -hmm. with community leaders, with schools, with educators, Mm -hmm. really thinking about we do need to speak to each other. We do need to build police community relations. But what does that look like mm-hmm. in action? Mm-hmm. Who's at the table? Who's not at the table? This ignores all of that and is a law enforcement approach first. Mm-hmm. And we strongly believe <laughs> that police should not be in non-traditional settings. Right. Schools, yeah. police should not be first responders to mental health crises. Mm-hmm. And they should not be in places where young people should be learning, Mm -hmm. should be growing, should be mentored. Mm -hmm. And so under this kind of, uh, it's rhetoric, Mm -hmm. but it translates into real ways that communities may think they should be going about doing their work. Yeah. I want to underscore this point that you're making that rhetoric can transform into policy, which then, even if it doesn't necessarily get passed or isn't explicit, can still impact the lives of people. So Mm -hmm. I'm I'm thinking about police, for example, in this law and order construct that is being resurrected. Mm -hmm. And while there may not be written policy about putting more police in schools or further policing young people in schools, just having Mm -hmm. that out there as okay and endorsed by this federal government and by the Department of Justice certainly will mean that young people in schools, especially black and brown, who already experience brutality at the hands of police in schools, are likely to see an increase in that. Yeah. And what it also makes you think about is the Department of Justice Mm -hmm. is the top law enforcement agency. It's supposed to be one of the top protectors Mm -hmm. of civil and human rights laws. Mm -hmm. And so it also begs the question around when individuals, when cities, Mm -hmm. when school districts need to be checked Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. around their whatever they may be doing that are harmful to young people or to communities, who's going to check them? Mm -hmm. If this is the institutional policy or guiding policies of the top law enforcement Mm -hmm. agency Mm -hmm. that is supposed to be responsible for protecting 
civil rights and human rights. Yeah. And so how are you seeing young people and communities pushing back Mm -hmm. on that? And what should people know in order to push back? A couple of good things um, that we know are happening around communities. One, I think today or tomorrow, the current administration is going to be doing some something around sanctuary cities, for mm. example. And we're seeing a lot of communities mm-hmm. um, fight back against that mm-hmm. and against the anti-immigrant rhetoric, the uh-huh. anti-young people or just people of color rhetoric. And this, you're expecting this administration will be essentially punishing those cities that have stepped forward to say... We are places of sanctuary for undocumented immigrants who are here in this country Mm -hmm. and who might first face persecution or prosecution and deportation at the hands of federal officials. Exactly. And and one of the ways in which they put out in their orders that they are thinking about how they withhold certain funds mm-hmm. from those cities. And so, we're, you know, again, we have to read the, read the, the details, the devil's in the details. Mm-hmm. But um, cities are um, organizing mm-hmm. against that. Mm-hmm. We already saw that in Baltimore, for example, mm-hmm. who um, had a consent decree to really look critically mm-hmm. following, you know, the death of Freddie Gray yeah. of, of their practices and how were they operating and, and interacting with the, you know community members mm-hmm. and the attorney general said oh you don't have to do that but the, both the mayor and the chief of what police is- there said no actually yeah. <laughs> this is something that is important yeah. to us to Baltimoreans this is important to yeah. our you know city cohesion this is important to our residents mm-hmm. because if we have stronger relationships, we know that our, our community will thrive. And so mm-hmm. what we see there is already folks saying, no, actually, this is not a place where we need your advice, which is going to return us back into the war on drugs and mm-hmm. law and order, mm-hmm. where so many communities were devastated yeah. for a generation. Mm-hmm. And just to provide some context, so Baltimore is where Freddie Gray was killed. I mean, he he died at the hands of police in Baltimore. And so there was there was a period of unrest. The Department of Justice under the previous administration was examining practices mm-hmm. uh, and policies of the police department there in, in Baltimore, found horrible, horrible actions on the part of police there, that they were targeting black and brown citizens, that they were following folks and surveilling folks, and in some cases, arresting folks when there wasn't a crime committed and and wasn't probable cause, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so the Department of Justice put in place a consent decree to fix those things. That was right before this administration came on board. And so this administration said, you don't have to comply with the terms of this consent decree. And the the mayor chose Mm -hmm. and police chief chose to say, no, 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 we want we want to make these changes. Yeah. And another thing that I think what we've been seeing also in communities around the country is folks really connecting the push out issue that mm-hmm. happens around school discipline mm-hmm. and the referrals that young people of color, black and brown youth get to law enforcement and pushing back against that. Yeah. We had some conversations with some young people in California and they were talking about how they're organizing at the local county level mm-hmm. to reimagine justice. Mm-hmm. So not thinking about justice as synonymous with jails mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. kind of law enforcement structure, but thinking about justice for young people mm-hmm. as a way of thinking about youth development, leadership opportunities, 
all the things that we know are important for us to be well, to be whole, mm-hmm. and to thrive. So you raised this question about sanctuary cities. And there are schools and school districts that have also stepped forward to say, we are places of sanctuary as well for undocumented students. Are you hearing about about that? And what's the policy? And is there written policy related to being a sanctuary city or a sanctuary school? Or is there just kind of a statement and it is so? Yeah, that is really, really tricky. And so I'll, I'll share enough not to go into many details. There's like no one kind of definition mm-hmm. um, or legal definition, we should say, of a sanctuary city. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, it's when city or local jurisdiction of government don't comply. Um, I want to say don't comply, but, but basically provide sanctuary mm-hmm. for undocumented immigrants and, and their families. Schools are supposed to be a safe place for children, as well as other kinds of like after school programs, childcare programs. Mm-hmm. And there was guidance from the last administration, Obama administration, that talked about this. And that has not been rescinded yet. And so it's really important that practitioners, teachers, youth development professionals, social workers, you know, really understand and be able to, you know, convey to young people as well as their families Mm -hmm. that ICE and Department of Homeland Security folks are not supposed to be in those safe places Mm -hmm. um, by law. But we have heard of cases where you know, folks are waiting across the street or outside of the school zone. And it's really just inciting fear. The ICE agents. Yeah, the ICE agents. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's inciting fear amongst families, of which we know what maybe the parent may not be documented, but the children are. Mm-hmm. So there's so many mixed status families. And so um, that's really key and critical. And what the rhetoric has done, even mm-hmm. if it hasn't shifted policy directly, meaning a law directly. Mm-hmm. It has incited so much fear mm-hmm. among the immigrant community. So I want to shift just a little bit to CLASP and its mission. Mm-hmm. So you all work on issues of poverty mm-hmm. and around low-income people and families and young people. And often we hear folks talking about race Well, we hear people talking about class when they're Mm -hmm. really talking about Mm -hmm. race. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So will you just explore that a little bit, the way that people can can conflate race and class and the challenge in developing policy that is explicit about one or both of those things? Yeah, yeah. We've done considerable work over the last several years to be intentional Mm -hmm. about having a racial and gender equity analysis. What we know is that a rising tide Mm -hmm. does not lift all boats. Mm -hmm. And so you can create a race-neutral policy, for example, after school for all. Mm -hmm. That sounds great. You know, we want everyone to have after school. But if we don't think about explicit targeting, if we don't think about access issues, Mm -hmm. if we also don't think about institutional historical relationships Mm -hmm. of where those programs might occur. For example, if schools were not a good place for communities or there were adversary relationships, should Mm -hmm. an after-school program be in the school Mm -hmm. versus a church or another community organization, then you may not see equity in terms of who should be being served in those programs. Mm -hmm. And so you have to really be explicit about that. One, we also know when you look at race and gender, Mm -hmm. say, for for example, girls of color or 
boys and young men of color, yeah. you know, policy is actually lifting up the best of practice, mm-hmm. right? That's what it should do. I'm mm-hmm. not saying it always does that, <laughs> but it should lift up the best of practice, right? And so what may be good in a geographic setting, you know, that is more rural, less dense in terms of urban areas mm-hmm. and concentrated poverty may not be a good policy mm-hmm. that will explicitly look at the unique and historical challenges that boys and men of color face, that mm-hmm. girls of color face. And then funding as well. I keep going back to funding because yeah. I believe there's a role and a responsibility for policy to drive funding, mm-hmm. not only public funding, but to actually incentivize private funding Mm -hmm. to move towards being explicit about income, poverty, race, gender. So Keisha, how did you find your way into this work? What is your, what's Keisha Bird's story? (laughs) That's a funny story. So I'm born and raised in Philly. Mm -hmm. And I would say when I was uh, kind of in my late teens, early 20s, I was a student at Spelman College. And I knew I wanted to work with young people. I've always worked with young people. I didn't want to be a school teacher. Mm -hmm. And at that time, there was not a youth development field. Like Mm -hmm. there was no, now fast forward, it's a field, it's growing, there's principles and so forth. So I just did a lot of work. Then we didn't see the program and Mm -hmm. did a lot of work in community centers. Mm -hmm. And each time I worked with young people, um, eventually became a social worker, continued to work with young people. I said, oh, there's got to be a better way. Mm-hmm. You know, strong programs operate. There's something guiding this mm-hmm. where we find ourselves in communities in Atlanta and communities in Philly, my own community I grew up in, mm-hmm. and really recognizing that the local system at the time was creating barriers mm-hmm. and not opportunities for the Black children I worked with in the South mm-hmm. and the black children that I worked with in Philly mm-hmm. and also then reflecting on my own life and thinking about what supports I had, what resources I had, what things I was able to tap into mm-hmm. as a Philly high school student, as a resident, what kinds of government services my mother used mm-hmm. to get me into really good preschool Child Development Black, uh, CCDBG, Child Care Development Black Grant. And she shouldn't have been penalized or thought less of because she was trying to provide better for her child. Right. She had to rely on government services. So mm-hmm. fast forward, end up really thinking about policy as a way to use my voice, mm-hmm. um, use my personal experience to bring all of those young people who um, made an impression on me, who I learned from. Mm-hmm. And to really advocate on their behalf Mm -hmm. and say, you know, no, this is not right. We have a responsibility to create policies, to create laws, Mm -hmm. to support investment Mm -hmm. in communities where for generations there has been disinvestment. And so I've been in class for about nine years doing it. So what makes you optimistic? When I look around the country... You know, the Communities for Just Schools Fund, we support community organizers who are working in local places. And despite the challenges at the federal level, they're making some real 
gains at the local level, at the state level, in policy, right? They're really pushing changes like legislation that is banning the suspension of children as young as preschool through second grade and getting rid of willful defiance as a category of suspension and expulsion. So there are some real victories, even in light of where the federal government is. What makes you optimistic in the the world of policy these days? So I mentioned that we brought together some young leaders with some national policy folks about a month or so ago. And I think really being able to see one, the sheer will, determination, courage, fight um, that the kind of young adult activists um, are putting their bodies on the line. Mm -hmm. And so what keeps me optimistic is that they're putting their bodies on the line. And I feel like the least I personally can do, Mm -hmm. the least an organization like CLASP can do is to have their back, Mm -hmm. to have their back to not tokenize them, Mm -hmm. to uh, consult them, lift up their voices. What do they see as solutions? What Mm -hmm. should we be saying to fight this rhetoric? to want to keep them informed, mm-hmm. and to be able to center their experience and them as the experts. Mm-hmm. And so what keeps me motivated mm-hmm. is our ability and our need, our mm-hmm. actually necessity, right, yeah. to be able to kind of co-create and partner with those young adult activists. And we, you know, they're all over. Everyone knows Dreamers. Everyone knows Movement for Black Lives. Mm-hmm. But they are in... Kentucky. Mm-hmm. They right. they are in small right. towns like they're Stockton, everywhere. California. Yes. And, all, they're organizing. and they're organizing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, what's the role of advocates like myself as well as organizations like class mm-hmm. to center that, to ground that mm-hmm. in this era of resistance, but also to know that this resistance mm-hmm. time is mm-hmm. gonna be over. Yeah. And we need a vision for what we wanna see for young people stand with them Mm -hmm. and what we want to do on behalf of them. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Keisha Bird. Thank you for making policy fun and (laughs) relatable and real. You know, I think think it it often sits on this shelf, right? Uh (laughs) Policy does and it it doesn't necessarily become real for folks. So thank you for for being on Schoolhouse today. Keisha Bird is the Director of Youth Policy at CLASP, the Center for Law and Social Policy. Keisha, if folks want to find you in class, what's the best way for them to do that? Yep, they can email me at kbird at class, C-L-A-S-P dot org, or you can follow me on Twitter at class, Keisha, K-I-S-H-A. Fantastic. Thank you again. All right, take care. Thank you for having me. And thank you to everyone for listening in. Remember to follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. And go to the Communities for Just Schools Fund website at cjsfund.org to find out more about our work. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful week.